look at this passage. I've titled this with reverence and all, and those are words that we perhaps don't use too much in this day and age, but as we look at it, I think that as Paul's writing this, he's really beginning to inform how we're to live as Christ followers. We've just come off of those verses in the first chunk of chapter 2 where he's writing essentially a hymn for the church to sing, and he's celebrating the grace of Christ, and he's now beginning to say, because of this grace of Christ, there is a certain way we must live. Because of the things that Christ has done, because of the finished work upon the cross, that has divine implications for us in how we live. That means something for us as we move forward. And so as we begin to look at this passage, I wanted to talk about those two words with reverence and all. You know, as we look at these words, uh, they can really mean a couple of different things, right? Uh, respect, honor, obedience. As we study the scriptures, they even have connotations of fear and submission. That these words mean that we put something on a pedestal beyond us. That there is something that is more important than us in our lives. And these words ultimately describe how we're to interact with God as followers of Christ. Now, as we think about this idea of reverence and all, uh, one of the things that I was drawn to, and perhaps a display of this, uh, is something that Paul references quite often in his writing, uh, athletics, right? Uh, it's no secret, today is the Super Bowl, and if you're like me and a lowly Panthers fan, there's no reason to celebrate. The few of you that get that, you're with me. But this is a big day for American sports, right? Like even if you don't care about football or anything, you're probably going to watch a few minutes of the game, if only for the commercials, right? That we'll all be watching this tonight, and we're all going to celebrate what's happening during the game. That if you're into football, you're going to know that, hey, this is supposedly be the two best teams in the league going at it. This is supposed to be an incredible game that we're going to watch it with reverence and awe. We're going to display reverence over the athletic skill of these players. You're going to watch these guys throw footballs tens of yards downfield. You're going to see guys run and run past guys that weigh two to 300 pounds. You're going to see guys display athletic prowess, and you're going to go, wow, this is a pretty impressive group of men. You're going to display all over some of the feats of athleticism they perform, everything from one-handed catches to catches against their helmet, breaking tackles, long field goals, deep passes. You're going to be impressed by the skill that they show. We're going to display reverence and awe during this game. Now, I know that that sounds a little ridiculous, but uh, that's how we function. That's some, one of the things we look at and go, wow, this is incredible. You know, even in my own life, uh, I've seen that uh, just in my time as, as a person who's been married to a pretty incredible woman. You guys know Kelly. She's pretty awesome. A couple of years ago, Kelly ran a half marathon. Um, let me emphasize, Kelly ran the half marathon, not I. I'm built for comfort, not for speed. And uh, we, that's obvious. Uh, but Kelly ran this half marathon and did it in like two and a half hours, this crazy impressive feat. And I remember standing at the finish line with our family there waiting for her to cross. And we're pretty impressed by this woman, right? She's a full-time job. She's a full-time mom. Oh, and she can run 13.1 miles and not die. That's incredibly impressive, Okay. And I remember just feeling that reverence and awe in that respect of, wow, she did this. She did it quickly, too. I'm out of breath just looking at you, and this is incredible. 
You see, this reverence and awe we display, we find it throughout our lives. We find moments to display this. And I believe that as we're studying the scriptures today, Paul wants us to display the same reverence and awe that we would display for an athletic pursuit or something else for our relationship with Christ. You see, as we look at this this relationship with Christ we have, we experience joy, we experience heartbreak and sorrow, but we're anchored by the fact of knowing that Christ is still Lord. This is why Paul is able to proclaim earlier in the book of Philippians, to live is Christ, to die is gain. That no matter what happens, Christ is with me. So indeed, the proper life of a Christian is to display this honor and respect for God and his work while celebrating the goodness and kindness he's shown us. You see, this simultaneous sorrow and joy that Paul is displaying here in this book is not just found in Philippians, but throughout all his letters. So if indeed we're to approach our relationship with God with reverence and all, how do we do that? How do we actually take this inner working of Christ in our lives and put that on display for the world to see? How do we display this reverence and all for the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords in our lives? Well, Paul, like he always does quite well for us, he gives us this idea and then he tells us how to live. He gives us the idea and tells us what to do with it. So here in these short seven verses, he's going to tell us how we're to display, how we're to live our lives in light of this reverence and awe we have for Christ. So as we read this section of scripture, I would ask you stand with me so that we can read it together and celebrate the grace of God that he's shown us. Uh, We'll be looking at chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of this crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, as we begin to study these scriptures today, These words that you have given us generations ago from Paul. We recognize that the truth of these words is still valid today. That as Paul wrote these words to the believers in the church of Philippi, so he wrote these words so that we would see them today. Father, these words are written so that we would understand exactly how we're to live our lives in this world. Father, that we would follow faithfully with you that we could display this reverence and awe we have for you and live our lives in such a way that the world would see the goodness and grace that you've shown us. So, Father, today I pray that our hearts are open and receptive to the word. I pray that as people are listening, that the words of Christ, the scriptures themselves, would speak to them. Father, I pray that if there are things that I say that would detract from your glory, then keep them from being said. The only thing we want to see, hear from is you and your word. So, Father, may the Spirit work in our hearts even now. May we listen well so that we can draw closer to you and grow to be more like Christ today. Father, we're grateful for all the things you've done for us, and we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You guys may be seated. 
So as we begin to study this text today, when I give you the main point, essentially it's going to be with reverence and all, comma, we do this. So our first point here in verses 12 and 13 is, with reverence and all, we work out our salvation. You see, Paul has begun these verses today urging Philippians to obey as they always have when he's there or not. You see, Paul is addressing the reality that we're responsible to follow the commands of Christ even when our pastors and leaders aren't around. This means we're to obey the word of God when no one is there to watch us. That we're to live our lives as if someone is watching. That someone is Christ. He is walking with us each day and we're to live in guidance with him and step with him by following his commands each and every day. Now, this obedience that Paul is referencing is key to us. It is the first step in working out our salvation. Now, this working out of our salvation is actually found to be a biblical word. It's called sanctification. Now, it's up on the screen here. It's a big word, but it's an important word for us in our faith. You see, this is crucial for us because it means that we have been converted by God, that we've been given new life, and that we strive to live like the holy people that God has called us to be. You see, it's about this progressive journey of becoming more like Christ. That when we first become believers, we are not perfect people. When we die, we're not perfect people. Let you in on that secret. But when we become believers, we have been cleansed by the Spirit of God that dwells inside of us. And that Spirit begins to work in us and change us. We begin to think differently and act differently. You've probably seen this in your own life as you've come to faith. The person that you are today is different than you were when you came to faith, right? If it's not, you maybe perhaps didn't come to faith. But the nature of sanctification is that we grow to be more like Christ. It is this journey of becoming more like Jesus each and every day. That is what sanctification is. That is, in essence, the Christian life. That we live our lives becoming more like Jesus until we're united with him in glory and in perfection before the throne of God. That this is what our life consists of. Now, as we think about this word sanctification, that is put on display clearly right here in verse 13. You see, it describes Paul's writing in verse 13. He says, for it is God who works in you. You see, we work out our salvation because God has worked in us. We work out our salvation because God has worked in us. You see, when people begin to think about sanctification, we begin to think about acts of self-righteousness. We begin to think about things of, I must do this and I must do that. I must stay away from that and I must not do that. And that is certainly true that there are things we are to do and not to do as Christians. Absolutely. We do not have a license to live our lives in any way we want. But we live our lives with these rules and these boundaries in place, not to earn righteousness, not to earn anything before God, but to live more like Christ each and every day. We do these things because of this inner work of Christ in our lives. We labor and work out this salvation because he has worked and is working in us so that we become more like him. You see, this working out of our salvation, this sanctification, brings honor and glory to God. Now, you'll also note that he says in verse 13, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, as Paul is writing these verses, what he is telling us is that as you work out your salvation, this is going to lead to different actions and different language coming out. That this working out of your salvation does bring honor and glory. That is his will for you, that you would grow to be more like Christ. 
but his will is also that you would work for his good pleasure. That is, you would work so that the world could have multiple opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the good news of Jesus Christ coming to seek and save the lost. That we live our lives this way, we grow to be more like Christ so that we could tell the world of the reverence and awe we have for this King of kings and this Lord of lords. This King who sits on the throne and is coming back one day. That we live our lives in this way so that the world can see, hear, and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the work that Christ has done in our life is intended to be put on display for the world to see. That uh, as we see later on, we're going to see a reference of, of shining like lights in the universe, that shining like stars. How do you hide stars? You and I can't hide them. You cannot hide the light. As even Jesus tells us in Matthew, what do you do with light? Do you cover it up with something? No, you put it on display so that all may see. That this is why Christ has worked in us, so that one, he may receive all glory and honor, but two, so the world can see the goodness of his nature. That he would take people like you and I, broken, condemned sinners, who had nothing to offer this God of the universe, and he would come into our lives and say, because of my own good and freed pleasure, I'll call you mine. I will adopt you into this family, and I will let you be one of my children. You see, there is nothing you or I did in this situation, in this relationship, to make that happen. In fact, the only thing we did do is contribute the sin that made it necessary for that salvation to come. And so, as we look at this world, as we live our lives, we are to live our lives in such a way that we work out our salvation. We put the good news of the gospel on display in our lives. Now, Paul's not content to just tell us to work out our salvation and to, to play at church, if you will, to just do the things that we're supposed to do. But he says that there's also supposed to be another action that comes here. He tells us that with reverence and awe, we are to display steadfastness. Now, as we look at these verses 14 through 16, we're going to see Paul urging us to a certain way of living. And this way of living really runs very much counter to the world. It's one that puts others above yourself. It's one that puts people before you. It's one that says the first shall be last and the last shall be first. It is one that is quite contrary to the world today. Even just hearing those, you know there is nobody on this earth that wants to put themselves behind someone. Nobody wants to go to the back of the line, right? Yet this is exactly what Paul is urging us to do. You see, first, he urges us to do all things without grumbling or disputing. Right here in verse 14, it's a direct quote. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. You see, Paul is reminding us of two things right here in this verse. One, we're to display humility and kindness towards one another as we live our lives. We're to display humility and kindness towards one another as we live our lives. Paul expects, expects that we will be joyful, praying servants. You've probably heard that a couple of weeks ago, that Paul expects that that is who we are as followers of Christ, that we are joyful, praying servants, that we're willing to live our lives in a display of mutual submission to one another. That means we compromise with each other. Now, that does not mean that we compromise on biblical truth. Most certainly, we hold tight to the Word of God, and they will pry it from our cold, dead fingers. But what that does mean is that we labor to work together and to compromise with one another in our world. For those of you that have been, that have been married for some time, you've seen this in your own relationships, right? 
You know, ultimately, as Kelly and I discuss things, what we end up doing is what Kelly wants. That's our compromise. (laughs) The ladies approve of this, I know. But with all seriousness, that there is a give and take within our relationship. There are times that Kelly gets what she desires, and there are times where I get what I desire. Sometimes we're both happy. Sometimes we're both not happy. But ultimately, the labor of this relationship is that we would mutually submit to one another and say, there are times where I'm not going to get what I want, but that's okay, because I know that we're better by doing this. I know that we're better by working together to see this happen. Ultimately, as we live our lives, Paul is reminding us that we're to live our lives in such a way that allows for that mutual submission to one another. That we can work together and compromise on our relationships. That we can allow people to win some in our conversations and work with each other. Knowing that there will be a time where we get to win in that. Now, not only is he telling us that we're to compromise in our relationships and to work together with one another... He's also reminding us of other times of grumbling and disputing. As we study the scripture, uh, specifically as we come back to perhaps the Old Testament, we see many really good examples of grumbling and disputing. Uh, One of the first ones that we can put on display is perhaps the Exodus, right? As God has saved his people from Egypt, he's brought the Hebrew people from Egypt, and he takes them away from the Egyptians. And during that moment, things are really good, right? They're high-fiving each other. They're celebrating. They say, God has been so generous to us. He's rescued us. He's taking us from this place. We're free, right? That lasts about 20 minutes until they turn back and see Pharaoh running after them with chariots. And their response is to go from celebration and joy to, did you take us out here because there weren't enough graves in Egypt? Did you want us to just die in the desert? What is wrong with you, Moses? How dare you take us out here to die? It takes all of a few hours for them to go from, we are free, glory be to God, to he hates us. He wants us to die here. Now, as if that's not enough, he rescues them by parting the waters in the Red Sea, and they go through, and Pharaoh and his forces are drowned. And you would think at that point, things are good, right? They've been freed from Egypt. He's defended them and shown them that he's going to walk with them. Well, over the next few books, we see them complaining of the food that God delivered to them each day. Why do we have to eat this manna that falls from the sky every day, God? Can't you send us something else like Krispy Kreme donuts? Is there nothing else you can provide? God, we're in the middle of the desert. There's no water. Why is there no water? Can't you give us water? God, you have all these rules. You expect us to follow us. We just want to hang out with this golden calf. Why are you putting these rules in place? Issue after issue after issue. They were never satisfied. It got to the point where instead of letting these people that have begun this journey enter the promised land, God had them wander through the desert for 40 years so they all died off and their children and grandchildren entered the promised land. Now you think it might end, right? And when they get to the promised land, things are good at this point, right? We've gotten this land. He's given us the ability to conquer it. It's this land of milk and honey. Things are great. No, things are actually bad. We want a king, God. Give us a king. We don't like that king. Give us another one. We want authority and power. We want to marry who we want. We don't want to remain a pure people. Let us live our lives and do whatever we desire. You see, the fundamental problem with the Israelites and with us is that we're sinful people. 
that even when Christ has worked in our lives, we want what we want sometimes. And that is not a justification. It doesn't make it right. But what we tend to desire is for us to be on the throne of our lives, to be in charge. If you've ever hung out with my children, you know exactly what that looks like. Molly Joy is perhaps the perfect example of this. She is beautiful. She is strong-willed. She will either end up ruling the world or in prison, and I'm not sure which one. But she wants what she wants, and she puts that on display and says, no. She said yes the other day. We didn't think she knew that word. But she is very clear that she wants what she wants, and consequences be darned, she's going to get it. You don't have to look very far. That's not something we had to teach her. That's not something we had to train her in. That's who she is. That's who we are as people. We desire the things that we want. And just like Israel, we begin, begin to become faithless and grumble and complain about the things that God has provided. Yet, though we are faithless, He remains faithful. You see, even when we fail to live these things out, God is faithful to work in us to draw us closer to Him. Now, that's not all we see here as we lay out these ideas in verse 14. He continues on and urges us in 15 that we are to do all things to honor God. That we're to set ourselves apart from the world by the way we live to honor God. You see, he tells us that we're to be blameless and innocent, without blemish. He compares that to the world around us and it says that it's crooked and twisted. You see, Paul is referencing the way that we live our lives in comparison to the world around us. He says, you as God's chosen people, you are to be pure and blameless. This means we display Christ-likeness in all that we do. That is, we're honest in our business dealings. We don't cheat on our taxes. We don't round that number up or down to benefit us. We do the right thing even when it hurts. That we display a faithfulness to living our lives in a way that will bring honor and glory to Christ, even when it's difficult. You see, this call of purity and blamelessness is an outward expression of an inner work. That's that putting that sanctification on display that we would say, Christ has redeemed me. I am now living in light of that redemption. That means my actions will be different. My words will be different. That means the world will see that there is a difference in me. Perhaps you're here and you're thinking, I'm not even sure how to express that thought. Like, how do I tell the world that I'm a different person? You probably don't have to tell them anything. In fact, the people around you have probably already seen that you're a different person than you used to be. But even when I spend time with people that I went to high school with, they will tell me, Walter, you're a lot different than you were in high school. Not just in, in, in temperament and action, but in character. The things that we would do in high school, you wouldn't do today. The person you were then, that's not who you are now. There's a difference there. What is it? And for those of you who like softball, that's one you can tee off on and send across the yard and say, well, let me tell you what the difference is. I encountered Christ. That when I was in college, I became a believer because of the faithfulness of a friend to share the gospel with me. And it took many times of him proclaiming the good news of Jesus to me. But through that, I repented of my sin and trust in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. That that is the difference there. There's nothing that I have done. There's nothing that anyone else did to me. It is by the shed blood of Jesus Christ covering my sin that I am different. 
that this is what we do when we display this steadfastness. We live our lives in such a way that shows that we are different people than we used to be. Now, as we look around the world, we do see that there are people who are good people in our world who wouldn't perhaps identify as Christ followers. They conduct themselves in an honorable way. They live their lives in, in a good way. And we know that they're honest and ethical. and We can trust them in business dealings and with our children and things of that nature. Yet, just because you're honest and ethical doesn't mean that you're close to God. That we recognize there is goodness in this world and that is put on display for many areas. But that does not mean that you are with Christ. The reality is that honesty in the world, honesty to the world, means nothing if it doesn't flow from a heart that's honest about its sin. That you can be a kind person, you can be a good person. But if your heart is not honest, if you're not honest about the sin and shame that you have that needs to be covered and redeemed by the shed blood of Christ, those things mean nothing. Now, in verse 16, Paul tells us that we're to labor to finish well in this world. He says in verse 16, Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. You see, the people that he served, the Philippians and all these other churches that he began, they were his life. He looked upon them as children. That He refers to them as if they are his children. He loves them and cares for them. If you've got children or grandchildren, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You love and adore them. You want to see them thrive and be prosperous. Most importantly, though, you want to see them to grow in Christ. That even now with our children, there are prayers that we pray for them and with them. I pray that they would come to faith. I'll be very honest with you, Perry may actually have already made a profession of faith. And we're praying that that's a real thing. That he's not just repeating the great things he's learning in children's church. But that's the display of a heart that has been redeemed by the goodness of God. That those are the things we desire for our children. And those are the very things that Paul desires for the church in Philippi. He urges them and us to progress in our lives so that his efforts will be profitable. You see, he compares it to an athletic pursuit yet again. He's referencing that I don't want to have ran or labored in vain. Not so that he may receive the glory, but his prayer is that he's not like an athlete whose training and effort was for nothing. Rather, he wants to see, he wants to know that the greatest prize in his life is for others to serve and love and know Christ. What he is saying is, he wants you to finish well. That is, remain faithful so that he can rejoice with us in the end. This really gives us a picture of how we want to end our days. We want to finish this life faithful to Christ. And we want to enter into heaven and receive that well done, my good and faithful servant. We want to cross the finish line and celebrate with Paul there waiting for us. We want to cross that finish line and hear those words, you did it. You lived your life in such a way that the world could see the honor and glory you gave me. That people came to faith because of your willingness to proclaim the good news. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done. See, Paul wants this future for us. Paul is urging them to finish well so that they may have this future. Now this ties directly into the last section for us. With reverence and awe, we sacrifice for the joy that is set before us. 
You see, he concludes these verses in 17 and 18, referencing a drink offering. Here in verse 17, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. You see, this reference to a drink offering is a Greek and Roman tradition called a libation. You probably are unfamiliar with that concept. Essentially, the way that it worked for the Greeks and Romans, as they began and ended a meal, they would pour out a cup of wine beside the table. And this was intended to uh, display uh, an offering to their gods, lowercase g. That it was, in essence, supposed to be functioning as a way of saying grace at their meals. They would pour out this cup of wine before and after the meal. Now, Paul's not condoning this practice. He's not calling us to that. But rather, he's looking to something that they are familiar with to explain the things of Christ. Essentially, here's what he's saying. Your faith and loyalty are already a sacrifice to God. You have walked closely with Christ, and you are sacrificing much for them. But if death were to come to me while standing firm for the name of Christ, I am willing, I am glad then my life will be poured out for you. He's very willing to make his life a sacrifice to God. And what he is saying is to him, it would be a joyous occasion. Not because he desires to leave this world and leave the Philippians. He's already told us that. But what he is saying is, your life, your faith is already something that I rejoice over. That if God were to take me from this world, I rejoice at the throne with him and rejoice over the grace that he has shown you. And I'll pray at the throne with Christ himself, praying that you finish well. You see, he calls the Philippians to not mourn at this prospect, to rejoice. Remember, Paul is likely in jail writing this letter to the Philippians. And he is saying, the reality of my life is that death is very near to me. Every call to sacrifice and toil is a call to love Christ. Paul met this call every single time, not with regret or complaint, but with joy. This is the example that is being set before us by Paul and ultimately by Christ. You see, Paul is willing to give his life so much towards the things of Christ and to the honor and glory of Christ's name that he's willing to give it even to death. Now the reality is that you and I will not likely have to live our lives in such a way that we would sacrifice our lives before Christ. That is, physically give of our lives. Yet, there, is th there are things that we must sacrifice in our life to bring honor and glory to God. Maybe that means we give up on that dream job we have so that we can continue to minister where God has called us. Maybe that we, means we give up on that dream house we have so that we can labor and finish the work of Christ where he has placed us. Maybe we gives up some of our dreams and hopes and desires so that we can sacrifice for him. But that means we don't get a new car this year because we want to support the church in this ministry effort. Maybe that means that we don't take this opportunity that is in front of us so that we can try and bring honor and glory to God. You see, we are called to a life of sacrifice. We are called to a life of giving and we don't do this sacrifice. We don't give in this way without a hope that there is something before us. We sacrifice for the joy that is before us. Because we know that though we will struggle and toil on this earth, there is a new heaven that we'll be coming to. 
That there is a new creation that is coming. There is something after this life. And though this life is difficult and challenging for us at times, we know that the anchor we have in the midst of it all is that we are going to be united with Christ because we are followers of Him. He has adopted us into the family. And nothing, not death nor life, nothing can separate us from Him. That try as we might, we will never break those chains to Christ. In fact, Paul writes elsewhere of this example of this unity with Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. He says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, as Paul's writing of these sacrifices, these things that we would do, he is saying that you, as a follower of God, you are an ambassador of Christ. That God is making his appeal to the world through you and I as followers of Christ. As we, with reverence and all, work out our salvation, as we display steadfastness, as we sacrifice for the joy that is before us, those are the things that God is using to make his appeal to the world. The world looks upon those and goes, that is different. That isn't how I operate. That isn't how the people around me operate. And in that moment of, that's different, why? We then cry out, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And he leaves us with this thought, this reference to Jesus. And man, you may begin to come forward. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see the one that he is referring to there is Jesus Christ himself. You see Jesus enters in the world as this perfect beautiful child that we just celebrated not even 30 days ago. As we celebrated this perfect beautiful baby entering the world we then see that he grows up to become a man who is strong and wise who is kind and gentle, but most importantly is the Savior of the universe. That this man grows up and leads a ministry that is faithful and fruitful. He does incredible things. The book of John tells us the things that he has done, if we wrote all of them down, there are not enough pages in the world to keep track of them. That that is how incredible his time on this earth was. And this man is betrayed by one of his followers and goes to the cross through a sham court, a mock trial, and he goes to the cross an innocent man. Even the Roman authorities looked upon him and said, there is no shame and guilt upon him. Yet they crucified him. And as he hung upon the cross for the appointed time, he struggled to breathe and he labored upon that cross for the joy that was set before him. That is that you and I, through his shed blood, through his sacrifice, the one who knew no sin could pay for the debt of our sin. So that in him, through him, by trusting in him and his shed blood and acknowledging the sacrifice he has made and calling out to him saying, Jesus, I want that in my life. We could become the righteousness of God. That you and I could become a part of this adopted family of God. 
You see, that is ultimately what Paul desires of his people as he's writing these words to the church of Philippi, that they would celebrate and rejoice in this righteousness of God. Today, that is what I am offering to you through the finished work of Christ. That if you're here as a believer and you've, you've enjoyed this finished work, you're rejoicing in the work of Christ. As we sing this last song, you celebrate the things that Christ has done in your life. You proclaim the good news fearlessly, confidently, boldly. But if you're here and you're not a believer, the thing that is being offered to you is this righteousness of Christ. It is being put on display for you that you, in your sin and shame, can have a better life. The things you're struggling with, the things that you're wrestling with, the things that you would say are not bringing you joy and satisfaction can be done away with. And you can find the only thing that will bring you joy and satisfaction. That is Jesus Christ. If I may, I'd like to pray for us as the band begins to lead us in worship. And I want you to know that I'll be right here up front. I'll be singing of the grace of God just like you. And if you would like to talk about the things that God is doing in your life, maybe there's something you want to seek counsel about. Maybe you just want someone to pray about things in your life. Maybe you want to confess Christ as Lord. Then this is an opportunity for you to do so. I'll be here up front. I'll be here afterwards. I'd love to hear what God is doing in your life. May I pray for you? Would you bow your heads? Father, thank you for this day and for the grace that you've shown us. I pray that as we begin to sing of this song of the grace of God, that we would be able to sing well of the finished work of Christ in our lives. That today, each and every person in here will make a decision. They will either choose to follow Christ or they'll reject you. And Father, I pray that our hearts would be open and receptive to the truth that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And that the one who has come to save us and redeem us is you, Jesus Christ. I pray that that would be the truth that we embrace, that we would call upon you as Lord and Savior, and that we could sing these words with confidence and assurance that you will be with us from this life into the next. Father, thank you for the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you for making him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Thank you for all that you've done for us. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.